Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. As the East Coast hunkers down for Hurricane Irene six years ago, it was the Gulf Coast and Katrina. A new documentary film blames the Army Corps of Engineers and Congress for a disaster in New Orleans that didn't have to happen. The Corps basically is the earmark pork machine for Congress. The Corps is in the business of servicing 435 congressmen and 100 senators to have something to brag about at election time. Comedian Harry Shearer gets serious in the film The Big Uneasy. Also, people power in New Orleans post-Katrina. A jazz musician says residents improvised. Everybody was like putting their shoulders together and doing this thing, helping this city to come back. We'll have those stories and why we're so bad at predicting hurricanes this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Government scientists predicted this would be a stormy year, and so far, they're right. There have been nine named storms this season, and as we prepare this week's show, Hurricane Irene is bearing down on the U.S. Atlantic coast. We're just about midway through our hurricane season, and from now to the end of November, forecasters expect storms to pick up. So just how good are we at predicting hurricanes? Kerry Emanuel is Professor of Atmospheric Science at MIT. This season's been a little bit unusual. There's been more named storms than are normally the case for this time of year. But until Irene, none of them reached hurricane status. They remain tropical storms. So we've had a lot of weak systems, and Irene's the first bona fide uh, hurricane. Yeah, we hardly heard of Arlene and Brett and yep. Cindy and Don. Those are the good ones, the ones you don't hear about. <laughs> the, the whole business of forecasting the change in the intensity of hurricanes is not very well developed, and we don't have very much skill at all in forecasting intensity change, by which I mean that a rational person's guess of what the intensity will do on average is about as good as a professional forecaster's. There's a little bit of skill in the seasonal prediction, but not very much. In other words, it's not a whole lot better than an educated guess. Really? Because oh, last yes. year they were predicting a lot of storms. I think they, they pretty much nailed it. They were predicting like 23. and There were quite a few 19. storms, and none of them hit land, fortunately. And so this is a problem with that sort of prediction is that what everyone really cares about, unless you're a ship owner, is a high category storm going to hit land. And yet what they forecast is not that. They forecast the total number of events in the Atlantic. So it's a little bit like looking for the keys under the lamp. It's what we can do, but it's not what's societally relevant. So when you look at something uh, like climate change, yep. and you say the world's going to get warmer, the air is going to hold more humidity, mm -hmm. can you look out 20 years and say we're going to have more storms, less storms, more severe, less severe? Well, we've tried to do that. I mean, a lot of people in the profession have put their backs into that problem. And their reputations on the line. And their reputations. Now, the problem is that the main tool for forward projections is the climate model, the global climate model. On the intensity side, there is at least some theory to guide us there. And the theory that has been developed 
puts an upper bound on how strong a hurricane can be in a given climate. That does go up, typically. And what the sort of consensus of my field is, is that in general, the frequency of very intense hurricanes should go up in the climate. That's actually what you care about. And the reason you care about that is 80% of the damage, and at least in the United States, is done by the relatively rare Cat 3, Cat 4, Cat 5 storms, whereas most storms are Category 1 or 2 or just tropical storms. So in a climate-changing world, you'd expect at least with some degree of certitude uh, that the intensity of the very big storms would get greater. Yes. Or to put it a little bit differently, the frequency of very intense storms would become larger. And we actually see some signs in hurricane data that this is happening. Now, can tropical storms, hurricanes, affect climate? Well, that's a very interesting and controversial topic, and it's a new one for my field. Uh, The answer is maybe. Oceanographers have known for more than 100 years that the large-scale overturning of the ocean, cold water sinking at the poles, flowing toward the equator, coming back up, which transports a great deal of heat from the tropics to the poles. Oceanographers for more than 100 years have looked for the source of that turbulence. There are papers all over literature. There are even papers, I kid you not, that suggest that swimming fish are the source of that turbulence. So you have this very strange idea that maybe fish cause the overturning of the ocean. But another candidate is hurricanes because they do demonstrably violently mix the upper ocean. So these are all very new ideas. Uh, There's no real agreement about them, but there's vigorous research going on. And I would be fairly confident in the next 10 years we'll know a lot more about it than we do now. I'm surprised by what we don't know about hurricanes and tropical storms. I would have thought we'd be better. Well, um, yes, I mean, we should be better than we are. And fortunately, a lot of young scientists have gotten interested in the problem, and I think we're getting better. You know, for many decades, it was sort of a backwater of atmospheric science. There weren't that many people studying the problem. There were a few. And it's become much more popular starting in the 1990s, almost in proportion to the ramp-up of hurricane activity in the Atlantic itself. Well, Professor Kerry Emanuel, thank you so very much. You're quite welcome. Kerry Emanuel is Professor of Atmospheric Science at MIT. It was six years ago, in the early morning hours of August 29, 2005, that a monster storm slammed into the Gulf Coast. Hurricane Katrina whipped into New Orleans. Fears realized. Underwater, here in New Orleans tonight, after the giant storm came the rising waters. Over 80% of the city is flooded. According to the National Weather Service, Hurricane Katrina was the deadliest and costliest hurricane in U.S. history. In terms of damage, it was the nation's first $100 billion storm, and it killed at least 1,800 people. But the new documentary film, The Big Uneasy, investigates why Katrina caused so much destruction and finds the cataclysm in New Orleans wasn't a natural catastrophe, but an engineering disaster waiting to happen. Comedian, actor, and voiceover artist Harry Scherer wrote and directed The Big Uneasy. Mr. Scherer, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks very much. You know, when I think of you and I think of the mockumentary, This is Spinal Tap, and Mm -hmm. uh, the comedy film A Mighty Wind, and, and of course The Simpsons, The Big Uneasy is a big change of pace for you. Why'd you make it? 
It is indeed, and I, it was nothing I planned to do. I, I didn't sit down one day and say, I'm going to do a 180 on a comedy career. Um, I'm a New Orleans resident, have been for a while, and after the flood, I came back when the city was still on its knees in every way imaginable. And in the weeks and months afterwards, the local media were reporting the interim findings of two independent engineering forensic investigations into what caused the flooding because the leaders of these two investigations had come down right after it started, looked at the evidence and said to themselves, the evidence doesn't match the official explanation of what happened here. Yeah. In the film, you have uh, Dr. William Freudenberg. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes. And he's from uh, what Santa Barbara, I guess. He was from UC Santa Barbara. He passed away earlier this year. Oh. But he's, he's there, and he's pretty damning. Yes. The leaders of these investigations both agreed that what happened in New Orleans was not a natural disaster, was uh, the greatest man-made engineering catastrophe since Chernobyl. When Hurricane Betsy came in in 1965, when Hurricane Camille came in in 1969, those were major hurricanes. They made the river flow backwards. Uh, By some measurements, both of them were bigger hurricanes or worse hurricanes, more intense hurricanes, than Katrina. But Betsy flooded 20% of the city, and after we built higher, stronger flood walls, Katrina flooded 80% of the city. Something happened in that 40 years in between. What changed? A lot of things changed. First of all, the United States Army Corps of Engineers changed. It went from being a Corps of Engineers to becoming a a Corps of Contract Administrators. It was pretty much hollowed out in the 1980s. That changed the organization from sort of the gold standard of American civil engineering to something very different. Something else changed, which is the erosion of the wetlands that surround New Orleans, especially to the south. Cypress forests in the wetlands help buffer the incoming wind and storm surge effects of hurricanes. And so New Orleans is now much less protected than it was uh, 40 or 50 years ago as a result of this erosion of the coastal wetlands. And a football field an hour as we speak. But it's also the levees. The film features prominently Dr. Ivor Van Herden, right, from the uh, LSU Hurricane Center. He's asked to put a team together and investigate why the the levees gave way. Yes, he was one of the two uh, that did, and Bob B. came from UC Berkeley, and he put together a team as well. And they both came to startlingly similar conclusions based on, of course, the fact that (laughs) the evidence that they looked at was pretty much the same. Now, we know sand is about the worst material that you can utilize to build a levee. Because it's permeable, the water can move through very easily. At London Avenue, as I looked at those flood walls and I looked at all the sand, I questioned myself as to whether the Corps of Engineers in designing the system had taken into account that there was sand beneath the flood wall. Well, it wasn't just Van Herden who knew something was rotten in the levees, but According to John Barry, who, who wrote a, a history about the levee system, and you have him in the film, the contractor who built the levees told the Army Corps of Engineers that their design was a disaster. And then it gets worse. Then you, oh, they, yeah. you got these pumps, a half-billion-dollar storm system, and, and they're supposed to pump water you know, out of the canals. And the Corps' own tester, Maria Garzino, I guess, she becomes a, a whistleblower. Yes, her job in the, this is in the wake of the 2005 flood. This is moving forward now. Uh, Her job was to supervise the testing and installation of the pumps that are at the heart of the new $8 billion plus system that we've paid for to be installed in New Orleans, built and designed by the Corps of Engineers. 
When I was in Florida at the manufacturer's testing facility, the pumps themselves um, were not holding up to that testing. They were, for lack of a better term, self-destructing. And she says the pumps were installed anyway and that they will not function because of design defects in the case of a hurricane storm surge. And that's what's sitting, quote, protecting, unquote, New Orleans right now. It's incredible. How is it that something like this gets built? I can tell you this, that uh, since 1927, when Congress gave the Corps blanket immunity from liability in any work they do that is a flood control project, there has been no penalty for failure for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. I don't care what kind of organization you're running, big or small, private or public, if you know that there's no penalty for failure, there is going to be more failure. What has Congress done about the Army Corps in the, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina? We have a journalist in the film who did the sort of the authoritative history of the Corps and it's why it is the way it is, Michael Grunwald. He was at the Washington Post. He's now with Time Magazine. And he explains that the, the Corps is the way it is because Congress likes it that way. The Corps basically is the earmark pork machine for Congress. When your congressperson comes back to the district at election time and says, see that dam, see that spillway, see that bridge, see that, wa- that levy that I, I got built, that's because of me. That's the business the Corps is in. The Corps is in the business of servicing 435 congressmen and 100 senators to have something to brag about at election time. I want to play you something from your film, The Big Uneasy. First of all, his name is Colonel Robert Sinkler, and he's the commander of the Corps' uh, Hurricane Protection Office. And it's almost like something out of uh, as if you casted this guy. <laughs> well, we, we value uh, all the constructive criticism we get, and uh, we'll produce a much better product um, and uh, d- serve the American people much better uh, when we uh, take a hard look at all the uh, constructive criticism that we get from, uh, from a wide uh, variety of sources. And we do welcome that because we'll be a better organization as a result of it, and we'll be able to serve the nation and uh, produce a better system here when we take all of that into consideration. Did you try to make him look bad? No, no. Nobody in the film was my puppet. I was asking questions and, and letting them answer them on camera. So, you know, I'm starting to think that this was all a joke and having a comedian tell this story kind of makes some sense in a weird sense. Well, look, there's no reason in the world why this information should be coming from a guy from Spinal Tap and The Simpsons. And it wouldn't have been coming from me, except that the national news media really dropped the ball on this story. They did their coverage at the time. They built their narrative on the first dusting of the facts. And that narrative was humongous storm, natural disaster, city below sea level, mainly African-American victims. See you later. All of which was half-truths at best. They did not ever update that narrative. I was really driven to do this when uh, President Obama came to New Orleans in October of 2009 and uh, at a town hall meeting referred to the flooding as a natural disaster. And I said inside my head, sir, you know better, and if you don't, i got to do something about it. Well, Mr. Shearer, I want to thank you so very much. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Harry Shearer is writer and director of The Big Uneasy. It's available on DVD, can be downloaded, and seen at theaters around the country. For more information, go to our website, LOE.org.
Just ahead, it's all downhill for a garbage incinerator converted into a ski slope. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's a recycled edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. No motors, no buildings, no trace of human endeavor. Wild. That's what designated wilderness in the United States is supposed to be. But millions of people visit wilderness sites each year. And when they got to go, they sometimes leave their waste behind. Jason Albert reports from California's Yosemite Valley. Jesse McGahee, dressed in a white hazmat suit, hangs by a thread and looks down 3,000 feet. He's just been lowered over the cliff edge of El Capitan, Yosemite's iconic rock face. McGahee, 32, is Yosemite Park's climbing manager. He's about to descend into Camp 6, a high-altitude rock campsite wedged like a flat table into an open book. Approaching Camp 6. There it is. Nicest bivy on the nose. Yet full of We're going to try to change that right now. This vertical climbing route is called the nose, and McGahee is calling this mission the nose wipe. He and a partner are here to retrieve decades' worth of refuse left by climbers. They fill two bags with over 100 pounds of garbage, climbing gear, even solid human waste. A waiting helicopter sling loads the cargo away and gets a warning about the contents. Far down below in El Capitan Meadow, Ken Yeager recounts how it came to this. He first climbed the nose more than 30 years ago. Now he organizes the Yosemite Facelift, an annual park cleanup. Back then, uh, it was very rare to even have another party on El Capitan, so you didn't have the problems that you run into nowadays. Climbing routes are vertical trails. Deviating from the path is risky. Yet the climbers in the 1970s managed to relieve themselves using an area of the wall away from the main climbing route. Uh, 1980s, that's when uh, a lot more people started going up on El Capitan, and so you'd poop in a paper bag. And then they'd uh, try to toss them as far out off the cliff as they can. And the idea being that they'd drop to the base and pick these up after the climb. As climbing use on El Capitan increased, so did waste at the wall's base. Picking up other climbers' food garbage was one thing. Handling anonymous biological waste was another. Uh, It became pretty ugly for a while. So the Park Service mandated climbers pack out their waste. And Yosemite climbing manager Jesse McGahee says the great majority do. There is a strong ethic from the climbing community, and they're more self-policing than I am. They started packing out their human waste before we mandated it. It's just that in a rock environment like Camp 6, every individual can have a major impact. You couldn't pick a more beautiful spot to spend an evening on El Cap. And unfortunately, out of the whole park for a campsite, that is the closest thing we have to a garbage dump in wilderness. Part of it is, inexperienced groups come here and get exhausted. Also, no permit is required to climb on El Capitan. So rangers don't really know who's spending the night on the rock. So it's the daily work of Yosemite rangers like Eric Bissell to find climbers in technical terrain and get the word out. We're just going to head up today. 
to uh, check out for trash, and there's a couple parties on the route, so we'll talk to them as we're going and make sure that they uh, have proper waste management equipment with them. A stark contrast lies about 200 miles south, Mount Whitney, the tallest mountain in the lower 48. Diana Pietrosanta is now a deputy district ranger on the Inyo National Forest. She began as a Mount Whitney ranger. Back then, one of her responsibilities was maintaining the two solar toilets on the flanks of the mountain. I sort of went into the job with my eyes wide open, knowing that there were these two toilets along the Whitney Trail, and it would be my responsibility to take care of them or maintain them. But I didn't realize that it was probably the major component of the job at the time. Out of a week, um, I would probably spend at least half my time dealing directly with the toilets. Mount Whitney managers used a progression of toilet designs, all with the same result. Rangers became de facto backcountry sanitation workers, and the human footprint proved massive. A helicopter spent three days every summer season ferrying loads out of the wilderness. It's kind of like if you have a campfire, you don't have a campfire. People will cluster around the campfire, and the toilets were the campfire of the Whitney Trail. So both from a visual and a sensory aspect, you know, it is not normally what you would consider a wilderness experience. So in 2004, at the base of the Mountaineers route to Whitney's Summit, the Forest Service set out a dispenser for free wag bags, specially designed bags for when you have to go. And people use them. Three years ago, Whitney managers were able to take out the last toilets and mandate a pack-it-out policy for the zone's 23,000 climbers and hikers. Okay, have you done the Whitney Trail before? Yes, sir. Oh, good. Day hike? Yes. All right. Unlike at Yosemite, every climber here at Mount Whitney has to get a permit. And to get a permit, they have to have a face-to-face meeting with a wilderness ranger, like Dave Kirk. Don't leave anything in the wilderness. Don't leave any um, litter, clothing, stuff like that. There's the tags. Um, this is the permit. That's, that's an important document, so just keep that with you. Uh, and then human waste disposal. So, wag bags. And, uh, yeah, do help us out with this. Um, you know, last year, hikers individually packed out 6,500 pounds off the mountain that would otherwise be under rocks up there. Sure. So just let everyone know they're really, they're really doing their part to protect the wilderness when they use this. Veteran witnesses at Mount Whitney say it has to be this way. Doug Thompson runs the Whitney Portal store at 8,000 feet elevation. It's been a climber's last chance for supplies since 1935. Uh, this is the best balance. Uh, it- it just seems to be the best, the best overall solution. You can't have the ranges manhandle it. Uh, you can't expect somebody else to carry out your waste. Uh, so this puts the responsibility back on the individual. And they always have that choice. Of, there's a lot of places you, you don't need a wag bag. Okay. And for climbers, the risk of improper disposal of human waste continues to be real. Ivan Valenta, a climber from Sydney, Australia, and his wife attempted to climb the nose. She actually picked up a wall bug because people do their business on the ledges and stuff like that. I spent the next two days holding a garbage bag under a backside till we could get off. Memorable moment for me. Yet even Valenta's close-up with dysentery didn't cloud his enthusiasm for Yosemite climbing. You don't want it to be stopped and we're not allowed to use it anymore because we're trashing it. So, you know, look after what you've got and you'll be able to come back many times to enjoy it. 
So next time you head out into the remote beyond, don't be afraid when you find a wag bag dispenser at the trailhead. All right, Ben. Can I come up? For Living on Earth, I'm Jason Albert in Yosemite Valley, California. For a slideshow about cleaning up Yosemite, hike over to our website, LOE.org. And there you'll also find a special interview about the Japanese government's decision to declare the area around Fukushima off-limits for decades. You know what to do when life hands you lemons, but what if it gives you a power plant that burns garbage? Well, if you're architect Bjorka Ingels of Copenhagen, you turn it into a ski slope. His company, the Bjorka Ingels Group, won first prize in an international competition that challenged architects to design a new incinerator to turn waste into energy in the Danish capital. Bjorka Ingels joins me on the line from Copenhagen. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks a lot. So as I understand it, I've seen your drawings, and essentially you're wrapping a ski slope around a, a smokestack of this new power plant. Uh, exactly. Like the, um, this building that transforms all the, the trash of the Copenhageners into their electricity and uh, heating is going to be not only the tallest, but also the biggest building in Copenhagen. We thought that since Copenhagen actually has the climate, but not the topography for skiing, we could actually provide the Copenhageners with a man-made mountain that transforms sort of the flat but cold and snowy Copenhagen into a real sort of man-made uh, alpine skiing resort. How many ski trails will you have on this uh, smokestack mountain? They're going to be able to choose between a green, uh, a blue, and a black slope. Uh, it's even going to sort of contain a, a mogul slope for the experts and also a slope for the kids. But a power plant as a, a ski slope? I mean, sounds kind of environmentally contradictory. The interesting thing about this power plant is like you can say one of the sort of main drivers of creating a sustainable city is to be able to integrate both the sort of economical and ecological infrastructure of the city into the city fabric itself. So you somehow need to find a way of actually integrating these uh, really big industrial facilities in the middle of the city. So um, the challenge of the competition was to try to make a big factory uh, beautiful. And we thought instead of just wrapping it in a sort of beautiful wrapping, we would really turn the entire plant itself into a gift for the citizens of, uh, of Copenhagen. So people are going to take a lift or a gondola up to the, to the plant and then ski down? It, essentially, they're going to take traditional vertical elevator because like, unlike um, normal mountains where you're forced to take you know, a ski lift, here you can actually take a vertical elevator all the way from the ground to the roof, and then the, the slope, uh, since in this case it's a, it's a man-made mountain, we can engineer it so all the slopes end up straight at the foot of the, of the elevator. But also, as the power plant is going to be uh, interested in displaying its deployment of the, the latest environmental technologies in the transformation of, of waste into heat and, and energy, they'll also be able to take like a promenade and actually sort of explore the various uh, operations of the factory looming inside the mountain. I was reading about the award, and I, and I see that this stack is going to uh, kind of puff out smoke rings. We thought that it could be interesting to transform the smokestack itself into a sort of a playful element, just like the factory becomes a, a ski slope. The way we designed the chimney is that the, the mouth of the chimney is uh, shaped in the form of a giant uh, disc. The, the hollow space inside the thickness of this uh, disc gradually fills up with smoke, and when it contains 200 kilos of uh, CO2, 
this uh, chamber compresses and it blows a giant smoke ring. One of the main ideas is, is of course, to turn the symbol of the factory, the chimney, which is also the symbol of pollution, into something playful. But I think more importantly, one of the main drivers of behavioral change is knowledge. If people don't know, they can't act. In the future, like in 2016, when this uh, plant has been, uh, been realized, I'll be able to tell my kids that once they've counted five smoke rings, we will have emitted one ton of CO2. This sort of abstract element of a tail of smoke that's like ungraspable and uncountable suddenly becomes very basic, just like, you know, counting the seconds after you see the lightning flash in the future, just counting the smoke rings, you'll be able to tell how much of CO2 we've emitted. Do you remember sitting around a table with your design team and uh, saying, you know, I got a great idea. <laughs> what did they say to you when you came up with this idea? I mean, we gradually realized when we started like probing and, and digging into all the criticism and all the sort of complications that, that this was like almost like the only sensible thing to do with something as big as a giant power plant. Uh, and it was only when we sort of came up with the sort of notion of not only sort of creating a, a building that has like an economical and an ecological purpose that, you know, it recycles waste into energy, but to give it a social purpose that actually uh, this giant volume becomes a part of the topography of Copenhagen and actually contributes to the citizens of Copenhagen and turns it into a destination. Because if sustainability is always perceived as the question of like how much of our existing quality of life are we prepared to sacrifice in order to afford being sustainable. Essentially, uh, the sort of moral burden that we have to bear, the sort of general understanding that it has to hurt to do good. We're trying to look at a sort of different approach where a sustainable city and sustainable buildings actually increase the quality of life. We call this uh, hedonistic sustainability. Well, Mr. Engels, thanks, and good luck with your um, waste-to-energy ski slope in Copenhagen. Thanks a lot. And you're, you're very much invited to come and test it out with a pair of skis on your feet in 2016. <laughs> I'll be there. That was Danish architect Bjorka Engels, whose award-winning incinerator will produce electric power and downhill pleasure. Coming up, building a home a hobbit could love. Stay tuned. It's Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Gilman Ordway, for coverage of conservation and environmental change. And the Sierra Club, helping city-bound kids explore and enjoy wild places they'll later strive to protect. Online at sierraclub.org slash livingonearth. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. You're listening to a recycled edition of Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Desalination, the process of removing salt from seawater, provides 16 billion gallons of purified water to the world every day. For some countries, including Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, desalination is already the prime source of drinking water. There's clearly enough ocean to satisfy the rising demand, but a major limiting factor is the cost of energy for the process. Now engineers at Yale University have come up with a more efficient method of desalination, which produces fresh water at less than half the price. Lisa Raffensperger of the IEEE Spectrum National Science Foundation program, The Water Energy Crunch, A Powerful Puzzle, reports. 
As the winds pick up over Boston Harbor, engineer Rob McGinnis stands on the dock. He sweeps his arm toward the bustling waterfront. Container ships loading up not far from here, cruise ships coming in. We have the airport right next to the water. We have uh, power plants which use the water for cooling purposes. But for all the things this water is good for. Right, so all the things that the water here is good for, it's not good for drinking. As chief technology officer of the Oasis Water Company, McGinnis will tell you that's not strictly true. Desalination makes seawater drinkable for millions of people every day. But existing technologies consume energy, mostly fossil fuels, that could be used for other things. Not so for the desalination technology McGinnis developed as a Ph.D. student at Yale in the lab of Professor Meni Elamelik. The revolutionary part of it, says McGinnis, is the energy source. We can take this very, very low temperature energy, the kind of temperature that you would find in, say, a hot bath. So if you came in contact with it, it actually wouldn't burn you. It's tolerable, um, say, 40 degrees Celsius. This is the temperature at which power plants often will reject heat to the atmosphere. We can use that energy source to drive a desalination process. The process uses forward osmosis rather than reverse osmosis, which is the primary desalination technology today. Existing reverse osmosis requires energy to push water through a membrane against its natural flow. Forward osmosis, on the other hand, doesn't apply pressure. Seawater goes on one side of a membrane, and even saltier water goes on the other. The saltier side is called the draw solution because it pulls water to that side. But the salts in the draw solution perform a chemistry trick. When heated to low temperatures, they bubble out as gases leaving behind pure water. Professor Meni Elamelik. So the invention here was to come up with a draw solution that you can really separate relatively easy and inexpensive by means of waste heat. Waste heat, like the billows of steam you see coming from power plants. If waste heat is available, the only energy needed is for pumping. That means... That all the water we produce by this method would not require additional fuel. And this is a huge difference in in terms of sustainability. The forward osmosis systems could be installed alongside power plants to use their discharged heat. Ultimately, the water produced in this way could cost half as much as water produced by reverse osmosis and use just a tenth of the electricity. At many Elamelic's lab at Yale, PhD student Laura Hoover is studying the membrane. Traditional membranes are too thick for forward osmosis. So she's trying to make thinner membranes to allow more water through. So this is just a water bath to keep everything at the same temperature. The test unit is just two big jars of water connected by tubes and pumps. On one side, seawater. On the other, the draw solution of special ammonium carbonate salts. The water streams pass on either side of a tiny membrane. So we have the draw solution here on mass balance. So we can measure the weight that's in this container over time. And so we can see how much water has moved into the draw side of the system from the feed side. We watch the numbers climb. Today's best forward osmosis membranes can produce the same flow as the older reverse osmosis ones. And no pumping is required. Meanwhile, back in Boston, Rob McGinnis of Oasis Water is looking at the big picture. The company is close to commercializing the technology. And there are applications besides seawater. Forward osmosis could be used to make fresh water from municipal wastewater or from polluted water sources. 
But desalination is the company's first goal. And says McGinnis, there's really only one question that matters. And the question is, what do we use to do that? Do we use fossil fuels or electricity that can be used for so many other things, or do you find some way to, to use less resources to do it? And we think that's what we can do. Oasis plans to begin testing a complete desalination system soon and hopes to start selling the technology in late 2011. For Living on Earth, I'm Lisa Ravensberger in Boston. Our story is part of the IEEE Spectrum National Science Foundation program, The Water Energy Crunch, a powerful puzzle. A gravel road leads to a glade in the forest here in Lincoln, Massachusetts, an affluent suburb just west of Boston. It's a storybook setting, light filtering through a widening break in the trees, blue sky, fluffy white clouds, and farm animals scurrying and squawking about. One of the benefits of the job is that we've been getting fresh eggs whenever we come out and do an inspection or add a drawing. Keith Malcolm Brown is principal owner of Period Architecture, He specializes in blending traditional styles with designs that fit modern desires. His latest commission calls for transforming this 1950s suburban ranch into an Irish country cottage, complete with thatched roof. This is the largest private residence that has a thatched roof in New England. It looks like a place that the Hobbit could live in. Well, that's kind of a nice image. It's in a, uh, uh, a setting surrounded by woods. There are chickens and ducks and geese, and uh, we were looking for something that would kind of epitomize a comfortable place to live. The windows look like mushroom caps. Yes, uh, called eyebrow windows. They're kind of a traditional window on this kind of of house, and because it's that, you can do curves quite easily. The challenge was learning about the material. There's about 15 acres of reed on this roof. This is architect Keith Malcolm Brown's first thatch house, and working with the material is a steep learning curve. Thatch is a renewable resource and has great insulating properties, or R-value. The thatch is a foot thick, so we're up to about R80 at least, and in some sections of the the roof, up to R90, R92. Literally through the roof. It's exceptionally high. I know of no other structure that would have this kind of R-value. And we raised the roof to 45 degrees from about 14 and a half degrees because you need that for the pitch of the thatch. It needs to shed water. There are no gutters on a thatched house, so it needs to push the water down and away from the house. Workers toss bundles of imported Turkish water reed into the air. It's like building a field on top of a house. Grasses and reeds have been used as building materials for thousands of years, and thatched structures can be found on every continent except Antarctica. We have plenty of thatching material here in the United States. It's an invasive plant called Phragmites, but it's not cut commercially. Where do you find somebody who does thatching these days? Uh, You go on the web like you do for everything else. And we found Colin McGee. Thatching.com Can I talk to you? I climbed the ladder, and betwixt and between roof and ground, I found Master Thatcher Colin McGee. Well, 
I'm Bruce. Colin, nice to meet you. Sure-footed on the steep roof, Colin McGee holds well-worn tools of the thatching trade in hand, a curved metal knife and a flat wooden hammer. It's called a legget. That's what you put the reed on the roof with. So he just catches the ends of the reed. So it looks all cut, but actually it's dressed in the position. I've been uh, thatching since 1977 and thatching in America since 1991. How did you become a thatcher? Uh, well, my parents are Scottish, so we used to do this Scottish tour every year and Robert Burns' college was being thatched. And that just stuck in my head when I was about seven. And I got, I sort of got asked to leave school at 16 and as a joke I said I want to be a thatcher. And the next thing I knew I got a list of thatchers in the south of England, wrote to several and got a job with one. So that'll teach me <laughs> so what's the benefits of this stuff uh, just aesthetically pleasing it's, uh, it lasts a long time how long will this last uh, 50 years it's a uh, great insulator it's a natural product it, yeah it's very it's great sound insulator it's just nice living under a thatched roof you've got a foot thick hollow reeds it's incredible it's like a giant jigsaw puzzle each reed bunch is a different shape so you want different shaped and sized bundles for a particular part of the roof. Like in a valley you use big bushy topped stuff. On a hip like here you want nice triangle tapered reed. So if you get the right bundle for the right part of the roof it it's, makes it very easy. So what are the challenges for you for thatching? I mean uh, here in the United States. Oh well it's, uh, the climate's a lot different so you've got to adjust your thatching techniques to suit the climate. It's a lot more humid here so the roofs won't last as long if you use the same techniques. You leave the surface a bit open so it dries out quicker instead of putting it on super tight. But maybe the reed, you use the toughest, ugliest reed you can get instead of the finest, prettiest, which you'd use back home. Is there a growing demand for this type of, of, of material or this building style? Well, hopefully. You know, nobody's building subdivisions like they do in Holland and, and Germany. They build whole... Hundreds of houses with thatch roofs. Really? You today? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just classed as another... It's, it's not, nothing weird or... It's just another roofing material. How long will it take you to do this roof? Finish, start to finish. It's a two-month job. And the next job is a pub up in uh, New Hampshire. Epping, so it's not too far away. Master roof thatcher Colin McGee. For photos of him, the thatched home, and architect Keith Malcolm Brown... Head to our website, LOE.org. Last year, on the fifth anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, Living on Earth, Steve Kerwood went to New Orleans to see how the city was recovering and visit some of its residents. In New Orleans, a little bit of French goes a long ways, like beignet for donut. And where else to get those amazingly tasty morsels but Café du Monde at the edge of the French Quarter? Depending on the morning, along with your beignets, you may also get to hear street musician Hack Bartholomew. trumpeter and vocalist who's played with the greats, including the Neville Brothers, George Benson, and Keith Richards, Hack Bartholomew left New York City after 14 years to come back home to New Orleans and jazz gospel. 
Hack performs five days a week at Café du Monde. And when he's not busy producing recordings, he's the trumpeter for the great St. Stephen Full Gospel Baptist Church. As the cicadas buzzed on a hot August afternoon, Hack Bartholomew sat down on his front porch to tell me the story of how he survived Hurricane Katrina. I got a revelation from God to just get out. So my wife and I and our kids, grandchildren, we all just left. Fortunately, my wife had a cousin in Houston, and we were able to stay over at her house. When the storm hit, we were sitting in Houston. We was watching everything on television and praying and hoping that everything would be all right for the city, but it was not. But fortunately, where we live up here in Carrollton, the Carrollton Black Pearl section is a pretty high point of the city. As you can see, my home is just like I left it. When I got back, a lot of my neighbors had wind damage. Like the neighbor over here, his roof blew off. Neighbor over here, our doors and windows blew out. And just about everybody had wind damage except us. All, all day, and all. church in New Orleans East on Reed Road, it was totally flooded, 14 feet of water in the church. But our uptown location was spared. I think we were one of the first few congregations that were back after the flood. I know his angels keep on watching. in Houston, we looked at the television, we saw the whole city underwater, you know, just about 80% of the city underwater. And I said, you know what? God is baptized in New Orleans. You know, when you baptize a person, you submerge them down, it signifies one being buried and rise. when you bring them up, they're rising up again to that new man that's coming up, that's rising from the water. And uh, New Orleans was really going off the deep end there, you know, with the crime and the corruption and what have you. It kind of made people think. It made the politicians think. It made the people of New Orleans think about doing something positive 
about having integrity, about being accountable to your brothers and sisters who you see every day. That storm, at the time it was happening, it didn't look too good. But in the end, it was very good because we had all of the love and the compassion of people, all the people that came down to help us, all black, white, Chinese, Asians, Indians, you name it. Yeah, I think they might have had some purple people down here. <laughs> I didn't see them, though. <laughs> but uh, everybody was, like, putting, you know, like, putting their shoulders together and doing this thing, helping this city to come, come back. You like to play the tune Down by the Riverside. What is the war that you're talking about that we shouldn't study anymore? The war that I'm talking about is not Afghanistan or Iraq and all Vietnam or any of that. The war I'm talking about is the battlefield of your mind. The people that makes us want to hurt another person or take from them is that your mind, your, your heart, your soul. What are we doing? Down by All right, the down by okay. Down by the riverside. New Orleans trumpeter Hat Bartholomew. He spoke with Living on Earth Steve Kerwood. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, and Ike Srichkandaraja, with help from Sarah Calkins, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza. And we send our love and very best wishes to our immensely talented associate producer, Jessica Elise Smith. She's getting married this stormy weekend. Also, we bid a grateful farewell to our interns, Daniel Gross, Stephanie McPherson, and Anne-Marie Singh. They came, they heard, they produced some mighty good radio. We'll miss you guys. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a Day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.